Let me invite you now to open your Bibles to the book of Hosea. Today we are in chapter 4, and we will look at the entire fourth chapter. From a uh, preaching standpoint, I like chapter 3 better than I like chapter (laughs) 4. Just a lot more fun to preach chapter 3. But chapter 3 is not all that needs to be said. And that's one of the benefits of preaching through the Bible is it keeps you from riding your hobby horses and your favorite text and it uh, holds you accountable to looking at all, the whole counsel of God, what he says in regard to everything. And chapter 4 is a chapter that we all need to encounter and hear and learn from today. But it is of a different tone than chapter 3 because what we have is judgment. As I've told you, the nature of prophetic literature is the interplay between judgment and restoration. God's word of judgment coming to a rebellious, unfaithful people. And then God's word of comfort and hope to restore to the remnant. Today we get judgment Hear now the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and also the beast of the field and the birds of the heaven, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. Yet let no one contend, and let none accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day. The prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I reject you from being a priest for me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they are increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply. Because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which takes away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles, for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray, and they have left their God to play the whore. The sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is good, therefore your daughters play the whore, and your brides commit adultery. 
I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go aside with the prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, and a people without understanding shall come to ruin. Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Enter not into Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, and swear not as the Lord lives. Like a stubborn heifer, Israel is stubborn. Can the Lord now feed them like a lamb in broad pasture? Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. While they, their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly love shame. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying through the Word to the church today. And we pray that as this Word goes out, that you would prosper it where it is sent, that you would cause it to abound and be fruitful in us who have ears to hear and a heart that is tender and receptive and pliable and responsive to you. And we pray that as the word is preached today, uh, new life may be given, that people would be called out of darkness into your marvelous life, that those of us who know you and are wandering away slowly, may we be arrested today by your word through your spirit for the glory of Jesus, and we pray in his name, amen. Well, as I just told you, this chapter is radically different than the chapter before and even radically different than the first three chapters because what we have now is really a somber beginning to the main block of teaching in the book of Hosea. And we have reset, so to speak, the rhetoric from the grace and hope uh, of chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, to the indictment of chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. And so what we have here is the Lord bringing charges, filing charges, as it were, against his people. But you need to understand this isn't just purely legal. We have an aggrieved husband addressing his wife, calling her to account for the ways in which she has departed from him. And so in these words, it's more than just a legal kind of approach. It is covenant prosecution, but it's covenant prosecution. And again and again, what I've been emphasizing to you in this series is that God being in covenant with us is both something legal that entails responsibility and being bound to him, but it is also something that is very personal, that we see God's heart revealed toward his people. He calls Israel his wife, and now he is taking the offensive against his people and causing them uh, to go before the judge, which is he himself. God is accuser, prosecutor, judge, jury. He gives the verdict. And so in this case, the tone of the book changes greatly. And so 
As we said, in the first verse, we know that a marriage is a legal agreement that requires something out of all of us. When we marry someone, we stand before the Lord and we take vows before the Lord and we promise certain things are going to occur. So a marriage is a legal agreement that requires faithfulness, but it's much more than a contract. Steadfast love, the commitment to the spirit of the marriage relationship, as well as to the letter of the marriage vows. You may be in a marriage right now, and as far as keeping outwardly the vows that you have made, no one could accuse you of violating them externally, but internally, you don't have that spirit of the covenant. You don't have the spirit of marriage. And God's people here were not being true to either one, either the letter of the covenant relationship nor to its spirit as well. And so God brings charges against his people. They did not acknowledge their obligations to God, nor did they love them. And so God begins with, hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites. And he summons them to listen to what he is about to say. And what he is about to say is powerful. He is saying, listen to my word, heed my word, because we're going to see that verse 2 echoes the Ten Commandments and he has a threefold accusation against his people. And so God, how do we know this is covenant prosecution? Because when he begins to talk to them about what's wrong with the relationship, it is based upon the Ten Commandments. And the Mosaic Covenant had as its sanctions and stipulations the law of God, primarily found in the Ten Commandments. And the children of Israel, he calls them the children of the land, which was God's great gift to his people to take them out of Egypt and to put them in the land, which is a picture actually again of Eden. We know that God created Adam and Eve and Eden, a perfect world and environment. And then because of their sin, he expelled them from Eden. And then he comes back and he calls Abraham. And then his people are sent down into Egypt and they multiply and they grow. And God miraculously redeems them and brings them out of Egypt and brings them to the wilderness. And the wilderness is a theological category for shaping his people into the people who he takes into the promised land. And the land represents theologically God's acceptance, approval, and benevolence upon his people. And now he's calling them to account. You are lawless people. You have broken my heart. And so these words sting, and they're supposed to sting. First he tells them, there's no faithfulness. Faithfulness, the word here is actually truth or integrity, and it involves being true to your word and your responsibilities. Without faithfulness, the bonds between people are weakened and culture becomes unstable. In contrast, God's promise is, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, but you have no integrity in this relationship. You have totally lost the emet in Hebrew, the emet. You're no longer faithful to me. Secondly, he tells them there's no love in this relationship. No steadfast love. This is the covenant commitment of steadfast love. The word refers to two things, both affection and commitment. 
And this is the marital love, a love that includes genuine affection, but which is also sustained by fidelity to covenantal promises. Perhaps you consider yourself, say, a faithful member of a church as someone who is true to your obligation towards God, but do you love him? And God has said, when I look at the relationship I have with you, my people, there's no love in it. There's no affection for me. None. Your heart is hardened. You've dulled yourself by what you've been doing. And so not only is there no faithfulness, no love, but there's also no knowledge. No knowledge of God. And knowledge here is more than just cognition or, or, or even uh, an acknowledgement or a recognition of our obligations to one another. The word was used to recognize the rights of someone over you. They are all relational terms. They are marriage terms. They are covenant terms. And you can readily imagine a distraught wife or husband saying, he's not faithful to me. She doesn't love me. He doesn't know me. He doesn't understand me. And that is exactly what God is saying to his people. If people are not committed to the spirit of their covenant with the Lord, then they soon stop keeping the letter of the covenant. There is a breaking of the relationship that always precedes the breaking of rules. And that's how it happens in the Ten Commandments. Martin Luther's insight is unsurpassed there. He said every violation of commandment 2 through 10 is a result of a violation of commandment 1. You shall have no other gods before my face. None. Zero. And once we move from something being God to ourselves other than God, when we move into idolatry of the heart, then that's when the violations of the rest of the commitment happens. And that is precisely what has happened here with this people. It is a diagnosis here. And so when people stop keeping the letter of the covenant, it's because they have broken the spirit, relational spirit of the covenant. When Adam and Eve broke faith with God in Genesis 3, the result was, as they left and went east of Eden, the result was an intensification of sin. There was murder in the family. There was a total social breakdown until we get to the Tower of Babel, which is absolute chaos. Now, he gives us five representative sins that are listed here as examples of Israel's law-breaking. Cursing uh, is swearing, that is, making an oath using the Lord's name or evoking the Lord's name to call down calamity on another person. In other words, it involves a failure to keep the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will hold, not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So all these crimes are clear violations of the Ten Commandments. To swear, to lie, to murder, steal, commit adultery, or to break the third, ninth, sixth, eighth, and seventh of the Ten Commandments. They were still keeping the Sabbath. But they were totally abusing the Sabbath. You want to know why? Because they incorporated Baal worship into Yahweh worship 
and they had this syncretistic blending of worship of the gods of this world and the one and only ultimate God, Yahweh. And so even though they were keeping Sabbath, they weren't keeping Sabbath. In other words, these people had totally violated contractually the contractual obligations of the covenant with God in a bold-faced way. And notice he says the result of the breakdown here is bloodshed. There's blood everywhere. Blood everywhere. And so the home is broken. The family is broken. The relationship with God is broken. Twice, twice already God has said uh, that he is bringing charges against you who live in the land. And the land reminds us of the Israelites' possession of the land under the terms of the covenant. The covenant made through Moses includes blessings for those who obey and curses for disobedience. And central to those curses was exile from the land, though it also included drought. The people had broken their tenancy agreement, and it is now their tenancy was in jeopardy. They were about to be exiled. They were going to be booted out of the land. And the repetition of in the land repeats this idea of God's redemptive gift and the covenantal corresponding obligations. Now, in verse 3, God's judgment is said to affect the land. The land is personified. It is said to be in mourning here. The history of humanity is replayed in the history of Israel. As I told you earlier, Adam and Eve were kicked out of Eden. And then Noah, the world was washed and renewed. God made a covenant with Noah. And not too long, outside the boat, there again sin invaded. Until we reach Genesis chapter 11. But here's what happened. God has taken his people into the land. And the land, theologically speaking, refers to the concept of a new Eden. God would dwell with his people in the midst of this land. But now, they have violated everything. And so, humanity... Uh, as we continue in this verse, we see what happens. Israel rebelled against God, and as a result, the land is becoming subject to Israel's misrule and to God's curse. A rep repetition of the fall is taking place here. Humanity was appointed as rulers over creation, vice regents. Humanity was made to rule over creation, but now our rule is corrupt, and so creation is subject to frustration. Israel were redeemed to rule over the land of Canaan, but now they too were failing and the land was suffering. And Hosea 4.3 says the land mourns. Precisely what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 when he describes the way creation groans. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In the hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of glory of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And so verse 3 echoes these categories of creatures. Beast, birds, and fish are highlighted in Genesis 1 over which humanity was to rule. Now, however, the blessings of Genesis 1 have become curses and the rule of humanity has become a threat. 
And the emphatic, even in verse 3, even the fish of the sea are taken away, is a worse judgment than what Noah went through. I'm assuming the fish made it through the flood. So the flood of Genesis 6 through 9 destroyed the birds and the beasts except for the ones saved in the ark. But the sea creatures were spared. However, God's coming judgment will affect even the fish of the sea. Our broken marriage, verse 1, leads to a broken human family, verse 2, and a broken home, verse 3. But there is hope. And the hope is found in chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, that God's marriage with his people would one day be restored and include within it the promise of a restored home. But Hosea continues. He has charged his people with no faithfulness, no love, no knowledge, and the following chapters pick up on these three accusations. Chapter 4 focuses on no knowledge or no acknowledgement of the Lord's rule over his people. It's not just a lack of information. It is no acknowledgement. Knowing God is more relational than, than that. If I say I know about the president, then I'm claiming to be able to recall information about him. But if I claim I know the president personally, I'm implying a personal relationship with him. So, by no knowledge, Hosea means this. You have no relationship with God. Verse 4 is very, very difficult to translate. And uh, a lot of trees have been killed uh, to make paper, to write arguments over what verse 4 means. I think this is what happened. I think Hosea's preaching, and he's gone through the first three verses, and the priests are standing on the sideline, and they are like, amen, that's right. You tell them, Hosea. You tell them. You preach it to them. These people are wicked. Preach it, brother. Preach it. And then in verse 4, he turns around and says, I have accusations, and they're against you, the priest. Kind of like Nathan the prophet. You are the man. And so God begins to bring accusation against the priesthood of Israel, failing clergy. Let's just call them clergy, the priest. And so he turns to them and he says, Let no one contend, let none accuse, for with you is my contention or my lawsuit, O priest. And so the controversy continues and, and Hosea is saying to the priest essentially this, don't accuse other people because you are no different. Hosea's message to the religious people of his day is echoed by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where he says this, judge not and you will not be judged for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye but don't notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will clearly see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we're told in Ephesians to speak the truth in love to one another, to rebuke one another, to lead our brothers and sisters away from sin. But we are never told to judge. 
Does that mean that we cannot do pastoral care until we've sorted out the sin in our lives? Because if it does, then that means we'll never do it. But the key word here is hypocrite. The person who tries to remove the speck is a hypocrite. And the hypocrite in the Sermon on the Mount is the self-righteous person who does what he does to be seen by men and to establish his own righteousness. And so clergy need to pastor people out of a strong sense of God's grace, both to ourselves as well as to you. And then you will not be leaving people in condemnation. But in Romans chapter 1, Paul exposes humanity's sin, starting with sin that exchanges the truth about God for a lie and worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And it comes to fruition in all kinds of evil. Just read Romans 1, 24 and following uh, this afternoon when you get home. Here, here, the moral person says, those dreadful pagans. But Paul says, you're going to be judged too. God's wrath is being stored up like a dam, waiting to burst upon you. God will not judge our respectable exteriors, but our rebellious hearts and our dark secrets. He's going to look in our hearts, blatantly evil and morally respectable people alike, and he's going to expose our secrets, and he's going to judge the desire in all of us to be a God of our own lives. I lived a good life will be no excuse because it will never stand up in court. Evidence will never support that. The priests in Hosea's day were responsible for teaching the people the knowledge of God and encouraging them to know God. But they themselves have rejected the knowledge of God. So God says, I reject you. As in chapter 2, Israel is portrayed as a mother while individual Israelites are her children. It is as if we are witnessing a divorce case as a result of which the children suffer. Because both priests and prophets have failed to teach the knowledge of God, Mother Israel will be judged. Your priests shall stumble by day. The prophet shall stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your mother. Hosea then says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. The destruction of Mother Israel inevitably means the destruction of her children. So there is a double pronouncement of judgment in which the punishment fits the crime. God says, because you have rejected knowledge, I have rejected you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. The priesthood was hereditary. And so forgetting your children could be the children of the priest. If they were forgotten, then the priesthood would be rejected. But elsewhere in Hosea, your children are individual Israelites, so it may be more than just the physical offspring of the priest. The pride of Israel is God himself. God should have been their pride and joy. God should have been their source of status and reputation. But now God withdraws and so I will change their glory into shame. Powerful words. In 1 Samuel 15, 29, the phrase, the glory of Israel, is used as the name of God himself. Israel's glory is her knowledge of God. But now she has rejected that knowledge. How has a nation changed its God, even to those which are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. 
Paul said the same thing in Romans 1. We exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images representing mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. In other words, we're not worshiping God anymore. We have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. In other words, we don't trust God. As a result, God gives us over to our sinful desires, shameful lust, a depraved mind. Our shameful behavior stems from this double exchange. We exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator. And then he says to the priest, they feed on the sin of my people. That's a pun. Let me explain it to you. The word for sin is also the word used for sin offering. The priest had a right to a portion of the sacrificed animals. It may be the priests were rejoicing in the people's sins because it meant more business for them. Or they may have been abusing the system. It's not hard to think of people, of businesses today that feed on people's sin. One readily thinks of the sex industry or drug trade, but it may be other more legitimate businesses that also depend upon people's greed and gluttony. What do you think advertising's about? Sometimes I think it works on me every time. We need to pray that our church leaders develop a deep personal knowledge of God and that they might faithfully proclaim the knowledge of God to us. We cannot rest on traditions, uh, though they are at times a great asset. But we need to live with express experience of God in and through His Word. We need our knowledge of God. We need to hide God's Word in our hearts. Verse 9 says, like people, like priests. Church leaders and church members can collude together in a lack of knowledge. The people don't want to be challenged, and the people's leaders don't want to be unpopular. That comes with challenging people's beliefs. Timothy tells us, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teachers but having itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So you think about how these priests contribute to the culture when they had stopped faithfully teaching God's Word and the covenantal obedience He required of His people and the... Uh, promise of blessings to the obedient and curse cursing to the other but it doesn't stop here I wish it stopped here because I'm even getting tired of it but <laughs> verses 10 through 19 again God brings accusations because of their failing worship he moves first in the first few verses from charging the nation and then he puts his finger on the, the cause of the nation, his nation becoming uh, not faithful, no steadfast love, uh, no knowledge of God, which implies uh, obedience and faithfulness to the covenant obligations. But now he, he goes further and attacks and accuses the priest, the root cause of the people of Israel being unfaithful is found and rooted in their priesthood. But now, he talks about their worship. And this section has opened with an accusation against the priests. They have failed to teach the people the knowledge of God. 
And it's difficult to know where Hosea's message moves away from a focus on the priest and broadens out to address the people. But perhaps that's the point. Like people, like priest. Basically, Hosea is saying in verse 9, there's not much difference between them. They're both one as bad as the other. The result is described in verses 14 through 19. The people commit immorality. And they do so both literally and metaphorically. Twice, Hosea says the daughters of Israel play the whore and her brides commit adultery. This may be a picture and probably is a picture of idolatry. But they are linked to the description of the nation's men who go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes, which would appear to be a literal description. Yet the passage certainly contains the figurative uh, descriptions of Israel's spiritual adultery. Where it's literal and where it's figurative is sometimes hard to ferret out. But the fact is, one leads to the other. One leads to the other. And so his people are just playing the whore. And what he means by that, and, and, and I try to think of a thousand ways to communicate this to you. Once God doesn't have their heart, once they've turned away from him, as G.K. Chesterton, Ch Chesterton said, when a man ceases to worship God, he doesn't worship nothing. He worships something else. And his people were caught up into Baal. Why? Because Baal was the fertility god. Baal was the god who brought them blessing in the here and now. It is perilously close to the health and wealth gospel. Perilously close to people who tell you you can have your best life now. But what they had fallen into was... They said, well, we can worship Yahweh, but we can bring this other emphasis in and incorporate it into our worship so that we can experience right now the wonderful fertility and fulfillment of all of the promises. You know, And I'm sure there was a group uh, of Israelites who said to anyone who objected to their bringing Baal sacrifices into the worship, calling them a bunch of legalists. Oh, you're just a bunch of legalists trying to rob me of my joy. I'm sure somebody said that. They always do. But they had compromised. You can't just put a little bit of a false God and mix it in together with the real God and be okay. That's not okay. And so as a result, what they felt they were doing, the way they rationalized the behavior of what they were doing was they would go up to these hilltops in the shade. God mocks them for it, actually. And that's where the uh, altars were for the false gods. That's where the Asherah pole was. And they would go up and go through all of these cult-prostitute relationships, and the men would do that. And in doing so, they were encouraging the gods, not Yahweh, but the gods, to bless them with fertility. As they watched them participate in that, they would be moved to pour out upon Israel rain and blessing and fertility in all of their life. So these people sold Yahweh out, just sold him out for the immediate. 
And so the idols of the heart caught, caught up with them. They were willing to uh, totally compromise that. Ephraim was the most important tribe in the northern kingdom, and often the term was used to represent Israel as a whole. The word joined here is a covenantal term, so there's a sense in which Israel is wedded to idols. Israel as a whole. In other words, Israel were looking to idols to bless them the same way they should have been looking to Yahweh to bless them. And so they enter into a covenant with these idols and through their engagement with these idols and following through on cultic prostitution, they were waiting for the blessing to occur. And what does God give them? Drought. They couldn't be satiated. Israel as a whole has played the whore. So the likely scenario is that Hosea is describing the spiritual adultery of the nation as a whole who has left their God and run after other gods. But the Baal cult involved ritual prostitution in which worshipers acted out the fertility sought from the gods with the shrine prostitutes. So the nation's figurative adultery involved her in literal adultery. We all know that adultery is wrong, and we readily judge uh, adulterous people, but we too have failed to be faithful to God. We have been spiritually adulterous, and an adultery towards God is surely worse than adultery toward other people. But God in 4.15 says this, Though you play the whore, O Israel, let not Judah become guilty. Now God already knows, and Hosea already knows, that exile is coming, that they're going to be kicked out of the land, that the Assyrians will come and uh, totally ransack the northern kingdom and destroy all of their institutions. But he begins to speak to the southern kingdom, Judah, and he says, don't even go there. Don't even think about going there. You think you want to take a trip up to Gilgal or Beth-Avon? Beth-Avon here is literally Beth-El. El means God, Baith means house, house of God, has become Baith, house, Avon, wickedness, house of wickedness. Gilgal was a huge place in redemptive history for the nation of Israel, but it had all been perverted. But the idols never provide. God says, go ask a piece of wood for advice. They think a stick can tell them the future. But notice God says, they shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply. Because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine. And when their drink is gone and they give themselves to whoring, their re rulers dearly love shame. There's more to God's judgment than dissatisfaction in life, but it can certainly include this. All the time, God is ready to care for his people like a shepherd. He's ready to feed them like a lamb in broad pasture. But the Israelites are stubborn, like a stubborn heifer. And the result will be shame. I will change their glory into shame. Their rulers dearly love shame, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Judgment. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. The word wind in verse 19 
is the same as the word spirit in verse 12. A spirit of whoredom has led them astray. Perhaps at this time, that spirit brought with it a sense of excitement. But now, the spiritual promiscuity has wrapped itself around the people like a tornado and is sweeping them up into destruction. And so, God basically says to his people, Israel, let them go. Let them go. God is pronouncing upon his people the worst pronouncement that could have ever been pronounced upon his people, and that is let them go. It's the same thing we see in Romans chapter 1 which is about reprobation. It's about when God gives people over to the lust of their hearts. He hands them over to this particular sin that they're engaged in, and it's almost as if he withdraws restraint, no longer calls them to repentance, turns them over, and it keeps happening, and it spirals down, and it gets worse, and it it becomes shameful. But even verse 32 tells us not only do the ones who practice this particular perversion do so, but they encourage others to and actually call the perversion righteousness. Do you see that in our culture today? God has let them go. By the way, God's judgment is not limited to what he does at the end of time. God's judgment occurs now. And one of the ways God's judgment occurs in a people or a nation is he gives them over to their lust that destroy them. And he says, I'm done. I'm done. It's over. Read Romans 1. It'll scare the liver out of you. It's done. Or is it really done? (laughs) Well, one of the things I love about the Word of God is it never leaves us without hope. When God says, let him be, speaking of uh, Ephraim, it's a rhetorical device and The declaration itself is not evidence that Yahweh has not given up all reproof. You could answer that by saying yes and no, because we know Assyria did come, the northern kingdom was let be, and the wages of sin was death and devastation. But that's only half the truth. That's only half of it. There seems to be an understanding that so long it is called today, there's time to repent. The author of Hebrews, based on Esau, uh, who found no chance to repent, is meant to galvanize his hearers to repent while there's still time, before they are given up to what they have embraced and let be. The concern rests with God no longer uh, pursuing or calling people, but rather washing his hands and letting them go away from him as they truly desire. The concern is God forsaking them and giving, given as a very real possibility if repentance is not grasped. It's interesting, Dante's entrance into hell and the divine comedy began by passing the sign that more than anything else determines the nature of the place. Abandon hope, all ye who enter here. 
Whatever else might be said on the subject, we can draw a straight line from Hosea to later expressions of divine judgment, especially in the final forms as put forward in Christian orthodoxy. The people of God are cut off from one for whom they were made and in whom they were to find life and happiness, and he lets them alone till their death. And they ought to have feared that fate above any other. But we see the exact same approach in the divine judgment of Jesus as he uses Psalm 22, verse 1 on the cross. As Richard Balcom points out, what Jesus experiences is the concrete fact that he has been left to suffer and die. God has, in a sense, abandoned him, not merely in psychological experience, but in the form of a concrete situation that Jesus experiences. In Jesus' cry of dereliction, which is, when he was upon the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We have the same working out of divine judgment known and experienced concretely. God said to his son on the cross, let him be. Let him be. And his son was in a mysterious way, ways that we will probably never grasp, abandoned by his father. God forsook his son to the punishment at the hands of evildoers. It was a declaration that God had left him to die. And so the wonderful hope for those of us who are in Jesus Christ is that when we look, we look at the children of Israel here, and, and it's easy to objectify uh, uh, ourselves from that and look at them and become, you know, like standing right beside Hosea and going, you tell them, brother, that's right. Pour it on. Preach a word. Preach a law to them. Drive them to Christ. Preach it, preach it, preach it. Without realizing the same time, we are them. We are them. And God could have as well given us over to our sin, but in His mercy, He has provided His Son. And his son received the curses of the covenant. And one of the curses of the covenant was a complete abandonment by God and being driven out of the land. Christ was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem on the uh, hill of the skull, Golgotha, outside the city. Abandoned, as it were, so that we, through repentance and faith, can forever stand under his favor there is no hope anywhere you know I had a, a professor I took a doctor of ministry class with a professor and I won't name him but anyway he he said this he said you know what the Old Testament's basically about the Old Testament is about this God says do this and you will have life and you will have blessing." But then, as you read the Old Testament a little further, it says, but you're never going to be able to do this. You can't do this. You can't keep the law. You can't do it. You cannot do it. No hope in you doing it. But here's what Jesus has done, because you can't. 
And if you simply believe what Jesus has done, it will enable you to obey him with a full heart. That's precisely what Hosea gives us today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this book. It's been hard to hear this. Hard to hear it. Because I know that it's true of myself. I know I see some of this spiritual adultery in my own heart. And it's, it grieves me, but I know even more important, it grieves you. And we thank you that Christ expressed our grief upon the cross. And we, through trusting him, have been healed and brought home to the Savior. And we pray that as you vindicated your son and you caused him to rise again from the grave, you stamped upon him and his work the approval and acceptance. And now we have hope that can never be taken away, that we will never be abandoned and forsaken because he was. He was for us. Now, Father, as we continue to worship, may we give as those who are gripped by your amazing grace. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.